Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Mark Powell, Chief Executive of Diverse Abilities Plus, an independent, not-for-profit organization working together with families to help meet the needs of local people of all ages and physical with physical and learning disabilities. Mark, hello. Hello, Matthew. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, we might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? Well, I think uh, <laughs> but it's a difficult question to answer, really. I think there's different styles of leadership. But I think uh, ultimately it's the person uh, that others will turn to um, when a decision has to be made. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? I think I, um, I like to listen. I like to involve as many people as possible. Hopefully, I think uh, my style will be then to say, okay, when we've had all these opinions and this is what we're going to do, give people the, you know, the option to uh, air a, a further view. But I think once we've decided we're going to do something, then um, it's about how we act on that and how we follow up on that really, and, uh, and push decisions through. Well, let's go back to the very beginning of your career, the start of your working life. Were there any particular individuals or circumstances that shaped the way that you lead today? Oh, absolutely. I think um, there's probably three or four people that I would say gave me opportunities, um, but also maybe even dropped me in the deep end on occasion that, that they, they um, recognized um, and gave me opportunities. But likewise, I think, you know, you look back as well and you kind of think about the people that you you, you thought were um, ultimately doing a good job, you know, not getting results, moving organizations forward, not just in profits, but in development of staff and, and, uh, and culture as well. Could you uh, pick one moment in particular or one individual in particular? Well, I think um, there was a... a my, my boss at the time was a chap called uh, John Perman, and he gave me an opportunity as a quite young man really to take uh, over uh, part of an organisation, which um, I think the average age of the employee was probably good 10 years older than me, actually. Um, <laughs> but he clearly uh, saw um, something in me and gave me that opportunity. Um, but he, he was tough. You know, he was also um, somebody who... Uh, you know, having given you that opportunity, we expect the results and was clear and precise about the um, the outcomes that we was looking to achieve and so on. And um, but very much a calm person as well. You know, so uh, you know, and I would say he was certainly one very early in my career that would would uh, offer solid but solid um, leadership, but also you know, recognizing a given people in the right jobs around you is actually key to success as well. 
And you hit it right on the point. Uh, the people who make up a company are, or a charity, as yourselves are, uh, make uh, the uh, the entity. Um, but of course, they don't always have good days. Uh, sometimes uh, people can be imperfect, and they have uh, squabbles amongst themselves, or maybe their work isn't up to scratch. How do you handle conflict within the workplace? Well, I, I think sometimes when you've got somebody, especially if they're long serving. You get the opportunity to really view their behaviour, and you get the opportunity uh, maybe to look in the mirror and recognise those um, elements in yourself as well. And um, it's not human nature to be on your A game every single day. I think uh, people have issues in their personal lives; they have issues at work and so on. But ultimately, you're looking for somebody who has the right attitude and, and really cares about what they do. Now, I'm, I'm presently a chief exec in a social care organization. And the one qualification, our people are very highly qualified. Um, they must care passionately about the people we support, but also um, about their other colleagues and so on. And, uh, you know, clearly, um, when you've got hundreds of employees, some uh, may not uh, display that, uh, that discipline. But it's really, it's really important that people, once you step into a management position, so you take responsibility and ownership, but you also kind of recognize that you've got this, you know, kind of fine results. And, uh, and I think um, where I am presently, I'm very fortunate that I have people that care very much about their job, what they're doing, they're passionate, they're committed. And, you know, I, I sit in, a, in, in one of my senior managers' meetings and I look around the table and I think, you know, Ultimately, these people might have your fair day, but they're, they're a good team. Now, of course, uh, you work in a, a sector that could be um, emotionally or uh, psychologically stressful uh, for your staff. Um, do you have any specific programs uh, to prevent staff stress or bur- burnout? Yeah, we do, actually. We have... Um we have a lot of coaching, a lot of uh, counselling as well. If, um, because, you know, we, we get um, young children pass away and, and things like that in our, in our day job, which is tra- traumatising for everybody involved. Um, and, you know, so you have to recognise these things. And you have to give people space and time to kind of really um, get over those things. It is stressful. Um, and it's an industry that's highly underrated by uh, the general public and and, and so on. You know, at the end of the day, I don't. I'll pretty much doubt there's anybody uh, that doesn't call upon a social care setting at some point in their life. So they're not the best paid. They're they're certainly not um, the best valued in society. But um, it's a tough job, and um, generally the people that that stick to it are um, you know very good and rounded individuals that are uh, committed. Now, if I was to ask you to uh, whittle down the uh, the candidates to just one single person, the greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? Well, that's a big question. Um, I think sometimes uh, the greatest leaders are not necessarily the ones that are recognised. You know. I think great leaders are often seen, the Churchills and so on, are seen uh, when in a time of crisis and a time of uh, intense. But I, I uh, in my early career, I worked for Sainsbury's, 
and I saw um, John Sainsbury build an empire from a, a well-established supermarket chain into uh, uh, an empire. Um, and I, I think John Sainsbury would be up there amongst the, um, the, the, the leaders and also the kind of entrepreneurial mind that went along with that, that as well. A, man, a captain of industry and a man of his time. What is it specifically about uh, his leadership style? I think he, all the things we just discussed. He he was very good at you know, growing the organisation, understanding how to grow the organisation, but at the same time taking his team and and the greater you know big companies like that employ tens of thousands of people, and um, and to take everybody with you is is, is a real art. And I think uh, his time at the helm of Sainsbury's was their glory years, and I think um, he managed to do that. Well, I think I think you know going through the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, very different decades, you know, of growth and, and opportunity really. And um, and he he kind of you know he didn't he didn't have a one hat that fits all. He he had a very good way of um, adapting to the times and the opportunities that was out there. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does next twelve months have in store for Diverse Abilities Plus? Um, we're going through a very tough time um, at the moment. You know, we are um, still pretty much our funding is down by about twenty percent from ten years ago. So we have to be very creative on controlling our costs and so on. Um, but we're growing the organisation. We're redeveloping a number of our uh, buildings. Um, we've just put in a sensory room, um, which, if you looked at the kind of nineteen eighties and seventies kind of science fiction films, you'd think it was something from there. This is a a highly technical uh, part of our uh, redeveloped building, uh, which will benefit literally hundreds of people from a sensory experience. Um, and um, a little bit hard to uh, um, kind of describe over, over the phone, but the reality is, is that it wouldn't be missing from a Star Trek film. Well, uh, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you, and I'd very much like you to come back on the program so we can go further into your specialist field. Mark, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That was Mark Powell, Chief Executive of Diverse Abilities Plus. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure, but uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure your delight that a certain someone is leaving a post, what are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching, or are they on the pitch playing and if they want to play then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she could reach out to people that others can't. So 
I'm I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from... Uh, for uh, candidates a little further left um, than them who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the, the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in. But how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding 
that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Uh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said, the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions. And anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm -hmm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, 
football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone <laughs> knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. Can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield. So I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good about of you. Sheffield United in the Premier League because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then five you lose 5-0 at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by, by half-time. What, what would a manager blanket say in this situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you could answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never never do this again yeah, well i'm a chelsea fan so i'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute um <laughs> but i would like to pick up on another point you just made actually david about choosing a strong team people that compliment you a lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick perhaps the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which as we record this podcast has not yet happened mm. and I imagine I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle not just to get people in who he likes but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it if they're just toadies by the way and there is a tendency a new mm. prime minister large majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them but get able people in i, I, I won't comment on some of the less able but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as i speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it i mean incidentally anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief, that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for a, mm. a, a, an easy morning television programme 
get out of the business. You know, don't don't do without it. a doubt. Yeah, uh, that's and also I should add that is how uh, these all stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, <laughs> that's what I always tried to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Castle especially is that um, it takes and talks to people again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you. Whether you're in public service, the charities or you're driving a business that actually says this is why I get up in the morning so you've got to have something internal to yourself the the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better you you can take pride without being egotistical there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better and that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about, and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors, and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the the people who are unhappy in their skin, they, they... it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us it turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Centre mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognise, which is why... Being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour Leadership Contest? How will the next 
few months go for the government after Brexit, uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020... Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019 uh, and that that's got to be Lisa Nandy or, or Kia on on the, um, the the next few months I think that the government will probably do quite well I I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my f family and loved ones, is football and, and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off, but I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blanket, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.